fans and welcome to shut up and wrestle an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories i'm your host brian r solomon and this is episode 27 and this week on shut up and wrestle for episode 27 my special guest is longtime wrestling fan publisher and photographer scott teal uh, we'll get to that in a second before we get to that want to talk about a couple of things with you this week. Uh, no magazines and that sort of thing to plug this week, but I just wanted to weigh in on uh, uh, an important issue going on and a debate going on these days in the wake of the retirement of Vince McMahon from his active duties in WWE, the first time that he would not be in charge of that company in 40 years. Uh, Huge news, of course, even for old school wrestling fans. Uh, I talked about it last week, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the legacy of the man uh, here, because why not? I have this platform and I would like to take advantage of it. And you're my captive audience. So uh, the reason I want to do that is now that it's been a few days, a week, whatever, since that announcement, there have been a lot of people weighing in on the significance of McMahon's legacy in the business. And I just wanted to to kind of give my two cents on some things that have bugged me just a little bit. Um, I do understand that there are many who hate Vince McMahon. There are many who love Vince McMahon. And, you know, uh, depending on the day of the week, I can fall uh, on either side of those camps or somewhere in between. And I get both sides. But I want to clarify something that I hear a lot. And I think it may be the result of just the post WWE landscape of wrestling information or uh, maybe the, the the ingestion of too many WWE produced wrestling documentaries in terms of your only source of wrestling history um i see a lot of people saying you know celebrating vince mcmahon for having made uh wrestling mainstream or having made wrestling really popular nationally and that sort of thing and uh, there's a difference there Uh, vince mcmahon it's not really accurate at least in this podcaster's opinion to say that vince mcmahon made wrestling mainstream or made it hugely popular or national um what vince mcmahon did is he made one wrestling company extremely popular and national and mainstream his wrestling company uh titan sports world wrestling federation world wrestling entertainment he made that one company prosperous uh the wrestling industry at various times throughout its history and well before vince mcmahon was in charge of the wwf um had periods where it was immensely popular um in the early to mid 50s at the beginning of television wrestlers were among the most famous people in america and pro wrestling on television was just about the highest rated show on tv there have been other periods like that there have been individual wrestlers who were hugely popular household names uh well before vince took over Uh, pro wrestling you know uh, gorgeous george andre the giant going all the way back to frank gotch and strangler lewis uh jim londis antonino rocca 
Um, wrestling itself has enjoyed major boom periods and it has uh, gone mainstream from time to time. Uh, what Vince McMahon did, as I said, is he he did that for his one company, his one product. The rest of the wrestling business, as it existed at that time, he really helped to um, destroy and and bring down uh, the the system that had existed before him of all the other wrestling companies that were kind of in, uh, jockeying for position and enjoying their piece of the pie. Uh, that model of the business was annihilated by what Vince McMahon did. So it's a little bit erroneous to say that he, he he made the wrestling business mainstream or national and that sort of thing. However, I will say in his defense that that system, that territorial system of all those wrestling companies was going to come crashing down with or without Vince McMahon. Um, cable TV was bringing an end to it in terms of bringing you know, one product nationally to people all over the country on, on a specific channel. Um, the downfall and decline of local television programming, which happened over the course of the 1980s and into the early 90s, it was going to bring about the downfall of territorial wrestling. However, I do believe that that the, the predatory kind of practices, the business practices of the WWF and Vince McMahon uh, hastened that demise. And were it not for those practices, I think the, the end of the territory system would have looked a little bit different. I think you, you may have had a handful of wrestling companies, maybe WWF included, that would have been able to survive and go national to a certain degree, um, either on TV or as a touring entity, not in the monolithic, all-powerful way that the WWF did it. But uh, there would have, I believe, been more alternatives instead of just one giant monolithic organization taking over everything and everyone else fighting over the scraps. Um, so that's my stand on that as a someone who's written and read a lot about this sort of thing and worked on the inside of the company. Um, you may call it nitpicking or splitting hairs, but I just wanted to clarify uh, some of the slightly less informed opinions and things that I've been seeing flying around about uh, Vince McMahon. So with that said, I'm going to step down from the soapbox and I'm going to maneuver a little bit more towards this week's fascinating conversation. Before I do, I just want to quickly plug the two autograph signings, the book signings that I have coming up in August in case anybody wants to come and get yourself a signed copy of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. You can come to WrestleBash 22 in Parsippany, New Jersey, the afternoon of Saturday, August 20th. I will be there on that day, along with a cornucopia of, of much, much more impressive uh, wrestling personalities and stars. And the following weekend, the weekend of August 26, 27, 28th, I will be in Albany, New York for the second annual uh, induction weekend for the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. That's going to be a lot of fun, and I will have a table there. I will be selling signed copies of the book. So if you happen to be in the tri-state area or if you are flying into New York or New Jersey for any other uh, business and you want to come by, I would be happy to see you, say hello, and uh, maybe give you a copy of my book. So having said all that, let's get to Scott Teal. So this is a great conversation, which old school wrestling fans are going to love. We talk about um, Scott's experiences working in the Nick Goulas wrestling office down in Tennessee for so many years, the things he saw and experienced there. 
Um, we talk about, of course, his many years as a publisher and writer of wrestling books and wrestling autobiographies, which he has contributed to so many, and I'm sure many people listening own a bunch of those books. So this was a great convo. Before we get to it, I want to point out, uh, you may notice, because of course I am an audiophile when it comes to this show, you may or may not notice a slightly different audio quality to this interview than we usually have. That's because I, I typically do my conversations for Shut Up and Wrestle on Zoom. Uh, this particular one we did on Skype. So it does result in a slightly different sound quality, maybe just a little bit rougher sound quality, not much, still in totally listenable, totally enjoyable. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Scott Teal, which I'm going to take you to right now. It is my pleasure this week to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle somebody who I think has got to be known to just about any old school wrestling fan that there is. So if you're listening to this podcast, you have to know about Crowbar Press. You just have to. If you don't, what the heck are you doing? Get on that. <laughs> He's the man behind Crowbar Press. He's been a wrestling fan going back to the 60s. He's been writing about wrestling for probably over 50 years, definitely over 50 years, photographer as well, um, and and even uh, as well as written a bunch of uh, or, or co-written a bunch of wrestler autobiographies, including um, the Ole Anderson biography, the James J. Dillon one, the Assassin one. God, there's so many. I'm looking at him now. The Don Fargo one, Tony Atlas, um, Dean Silverstone, I mean, and, and more. So he, he's one of the preeminent people in the world of old school wrestling, especially the old school wrestling media. And his name is, of course, you figured it out by now, Scott Teal. How's that? <laughs> That's great. Awesome. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm great, Scott. This has been uh, something I've had in my mind ever since I started this in February. I had a list of people in my head as the, the, the people that are off the top of my head kind of people that I want to have. And you were one of them. And awesome. um, it took me about 25 plus episodes to get around to it. But I finally did. Good. How's your book on the sheet going? It's going really well, actually. We um, we passed. Um, well, let's see. It's been out for like a couple of months now, and the demand just seems to keep on going. It's kind of interesting to me because there's a second wave now. Like when when I first started, when it first came out, there's all this interest, and then it got quiet for a couple of months, and now it's getting crazy again. And I think it's because everybody had a chance to read it. <laughs> so, yeah. So now yeah. everybody is. Yeah. It's Talking it's been pretty it. exciting. Yeah, everybody's talking about it. Of course, I interviewed you for it, and you had some fun stories to tell. I remember your story about the the sheik chasing you around the ring, and that made it into the book. <laughs> oh, awesome! Good deal. Yeah, I've been meaning to pick up a copy, and I will get up. In fact, I'll do that after I hang up here. I, I'm so far behind in books, but I'd really like to read that one. Oh, great! Well, I would be honored, especially. I mean, you. You've. Got, I mean, I'm trying to think now. You know, I don't know if there is anybody that has worked on more wrestling biographies and autobiographies than you have. I think you, you must have some kind of record. No, that's probably close to it. <laughs> uh, I just finished my, uh, you know, I started out with my Whatever Happened To magazine back in 95, I think, 92 maybe, yes. and did interviews with all the guys. And I, I'm putting those in book format now in called Wrestling Archive Project. 
And I just, just before we hung up, I have been going crazy this morning trying to finish it so I can get the files to the printer. I just did the third volume of the Wrestling Archive Project. And that's actually my 60th book that I've published about pro wrestling. Wow. Yeah. So who's keeping track, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the only reason I know that is because I was writing a foreword for the book and I thought that might be pretty cool to see how many I've, I've done. And so I gave it a count. And that's what it was. I don't know how many of them are autobiographies or biographies or whatever, but uh, right. quite a few of them. Yeah. And you know what I love to, and I'm sure people that, that order from Crowbar Press and that know about it is the fact that you give a voice and a platform to wrestlers who, you know, may not ordinarily have the easiest time getting a book out there in terms of, you know, because the appeal is for us. You know what I mean? It's for people like us who love this stuff. But a mainstream publisher is going to go, I don't know if, it, you know, if it's not Andre the Giant or somebody like that or Hulk Hogan, you know. The, the, it all becomes about the bottom line, and I can't fault them for that. But it's nice that there is a place that those stories can be told. That is that is a great thing to have. Absolutely, that that's always been one of my uh, things I've pushed for. In fact, I had people when I used to do whatever happened to people used to say the thing they enjoyed the most about the magazine was that I didn't just cover the main event guys, which we you know we know most everything about a lot of them anyways. But they said they learned about some of these underneath guys, the guys that worked and, and did the jobs for the main eventers. And if it wasn't for those guys, the main eventers wouldn't would have never made it either because they wouldn't have had anybody to make them look good. That's so true. And the stories, as we all know, you know, people talk about this all the time. The stories can just disappear if they're not recorded and, and passed on and, pe you know, people die and people get older and. And sometimes they take stories with them. It almost makes you think like how many stories there must be, even life stories that we'll never really know about because it's too late. Right? Absolutely. Uh, the, this wrestling archive project I just finished, uh, several of the guys in there, I had an interview with Leo Garibaldi and it's, it's probably about 20, 15 pages, 20 pages, but that's nothing compared to what it should have been. And I just never got a chance to get back to him before he passed away. Uh, Who's the other? Al Costello, one of the fabulous oh, wow. kangaroos. It's a short interview, about six pages. Al and I were very good friends, but I never really sat down with him and did a lengthy interview. And all those memories that Al had, they're gone now, just like you said. You know, when these guys are gone, all that history disappeared. Wrestling was so different from any other sport, really anything, because in pro wrestling, everything was kept a secret. Nobody wanted the, the, anybody to know about what went on behind the scenes, the stories in the cars and the, the ribs they pulled and things that happened in the dressing room uh, in real life. So the only people that have that information are, are the wrestlers themselves. And, and, and when they forget it or when they pass away, then those stories are just disappear forever. That's so true. You're, you're right, because it's a business that didn't want people to know the, tr the true story of things and the background. It, you know, it was it's always been I still even think to some degree today, it's always been in promoters best interest that the fans not be too smart and not be too clued in to the, the real stories. And I, I would have to say, although you would know better than me, that the 90s, I guess, was when that started to become more established wrestlers not being afraid to tell the truth and tell their real stories and give interviews that weren't, you know, in character and things like that. Would that be about right? Oh, absolutely. My first newsletter, I think it was 1992, uh, the first issue of my Whatever Happened to. In fact, the first four or five issues, 
I kept it kayfabe. In other words, I didn't tell I didn't tell anything that we didn't want the fans to know back in the 70s and 80s because I was so ingrained with it, working in the business back in the 70s that I just refused to open up myself, you know. And so I wasn't about to have a to ask the wrestler some of these questions, you know, like did you use a razor blade to cut your head or you know I wasn't going to ask that kind have them answer because I they, a lot of them people didn't want to. But after five issues, it was getting to a point TV was so ridiculous compared to I'm not ridiculous. That, it's good. for It was great for the, the people who enjoyed it. But for, for the old school fans, it was a totally right. different animal. So I didn't bring any of that out. But the wrestlers, a few of the wrestlers, all of a sudden, they said, why don't you just tell the whole story? Why don't you why don't we talk about some of the things that happened behind the scenes? And it was actually the rest wrestlers that convinced me to open up and and lay it lay it lay it out. Of course, from issue number five on, it's Katie bar the door. You know, we, we there was nothing held back. You know, I asked them everything, everything you could possibly think about pro wrestling. You know, what happened in the you know in the match. You know, what what about this promoter, that promoter? You know, uh, you know the, the behind the scenes things of how the matches are were put together, who they had problems with in the ring. And of course, Lou Thez was very instrumental in the guys opening up because once Lou uh, published his book, Hooker, then uh, he was very open and he's probably one of the last people I would have thought would ever would ever do that. But once he published his book, Ho uh, Hooker, it was just absolutely open, you know, fair game for anybody else to do the same. And it still took a while before people, you know, decided to do that. That's a great point. You know, now that I think about it, it really was one of the first books to really do that, especially from a first person point of view. I almost wonder, knowing a little bit about Fez as I do and, and having talked to him a few times about the book, if maybe he was compelled to do it because of that pride he had where he wanted to point out to people what he did, what made him different from everybody, or at least in in his mind, what made him different and he couldn't really do that without breaking kayfabe and telling people, look, these guys over here are for show. What I'm doing is more real. Well, you can't really explain that without pulling the curtain back, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of guys were the same way. You know, they wanted the stories to be told so that it's told correctly. You know, so you read so many stories that people with this, this about the business and that about the wrestling business. And and they don't really know what they're talking about. And so they'll tell tell stories about things that happen. And, the, and you're thinking, there's no way. I hear that all the time. People say, oh, this used to happen in the old days. One particular thing is like the championship belts. People see some of these, the old title belts back from the 60s and the 50s. And they were really chintzy looking. But back time, then, yeah. back then, nobody cared, nobody cared about the physical belt. I mean, fans did not talk about how bad a belt looked, how good a belt looked. It wasn't a deal until the 80s, 70s, maybe late 70s, early 80s. In fact, as long as I was in the business, I never heard anybody mention it at all. Of course, as time went on in the 80s and 90s, the belts got bigger and more fancy. And so the people today think that's how belts should have always looked. But back then, it wasn't about the belts. It was about the title and it was about the matches. Uh, the people weren't so concerned about, about something looked like. Yeah, you know, it, it's true about the belts. I think another thing that would happen, too, is as time went on, they were trying to make the belts bigger to, to and more impressive to make them kind of stand out from the belts of the past. On You know, it was like a very intentional thing. It was like a reaction of saying, well, let's do something bigger and better. And then, of course, you had 
Yeah, there was the whole WWF mentality, which I think spread to the whole business of this is a television company. And so this has to look good on TV. When the camera camera zooms in, it's got to look really high class and prestigious. Whereas I don't know if they were thinking about that back then because they were mainly thinking of it as a live event. And if you're up in Section 300 (laughs) – you can't really it's it's just a piece of gold around somebody's waist. That's all you really need to see, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, well, I think one of the biggest belts uh in the older days in, in the seventies was the AWA. Uh, I was gonna say, yeah. That thing was huge. I mean uh, Stan Hansen, you see him holding it in pictures, it was big. Uh but belts before that, they were pr- fairly you know, small. Uh, look at the Luthez belt, the one that dates back to the 30s. Oh, my goodness. That's just a little tiny. It's almost like a belt that goes around your waist, you know, a small belt. Right. Uh, so, yeah, th- they were quite different back then. There's a picture. I'm sure you've seen it. It, it. it floats around online all the time. It's a shot of Nick Bockwinkle and Luthez in the ring together. You know what I'm talking about because I see you smiling already. They're both holding their belts. And... Lou Thez looks kind of sad standing next to Nick with this gigantic belt. You could almost it, it almost looks like it's a rib on him or something. And he's standing there and he's got the belt, which is a beautiful belt when you see it up close. But of course, it's so small compared to modern belts. And a lot of people look at that picture and laugh. But again, it's the it's the different mentalities. Nobody cared about the size of the belt. It was what the belt represented. Absolutely. And look at the history behind that belt that Lou held. My goodness. Uh, you know, the right. guys that, that wore that title. And I guess I think Ko- Koji Miyamoto over in Japan owns that now, I believe. Yeah, well, I because that belt actually predated Thez, didn't it? I mean, it came into his possession, but wasn't it worn by champions I'm before trying him? To, Tom Pax, I think, is the one that had that belt made up in St. Louis. Uh, I don't know if I can't remember if if Lou had it first, if it was created for him or before. I've got the the newspaper article talks about when it was created. I'd have to look it up. I could let you know later on. And I know that when he was involved with thinking Houston, right, when they tried to have the world title tournament there, the one that if I I don't know if I'm mixing it up, but I think the one that Adrian Adonis won that Thez was involved with. I think he actually let them use his belt. Yeah, that could be. He brought it here to Tennessee. When I first met Lou back in 19, wanting to say 75, yeah. uh, he brought that belt with him. And I went, He, uh, I met him at the matches that night and he invited me to his apartment to come oh, wow. sit and chat with him. And uh, he brought the belt out that day. And you talk about, man, that was the coolest thing to be <laughs> able to hold the, the NWA World Heavyweight Championship belt that Luthez wore back in the in the 30s. Uh, and he was wasn't uh, hesitant to uh, to bring it to territories and let people use it, but I'll guarantee you they didn't take it home at night after they after they won it. <laughs> no, right. And and I guess like you said, now it, it somehow made its way to Japan. I guess did he sell it or or was it? No, Koji is a close close friend of uh, both Charlie and uh, Lou and Charlie Thins. Charlie's his wife. Uh, Koji's very very close to them and uh, has had been for for decades before I met, or at least for years before I met Lou. Right. So Lou, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure Lou gave it, to, gave it to him. I know Koji wouldn't have, wouldn't have had to buy it from him. So of course, a little bit later on though, and even in Vez's last title reign, he wasn't using that belt anymore. They had that specially designed, I guess, 
the one that they made for Pat O'Connor originally became the belt that was used all through the 60s into the early 70s. Yes, that's true. Which I love. I love that design. That's actually, I think that's my favorite one. I know everybody loves the the the, the, the domed globe one, and, and it's nice, but I like that 60s one even better. Yeah. Yeah, I've got, uh, I don't know if you've seen Dick Bourne's book. Dick uh, Bourne has Mid-Atlantic Gateway website, and he wrote a book on the, I think he called it 10 Pounds of Gold, and it was yes. about NWA Bell. Yeah, I've seen the book. I haven't read it, but that's that's an interesting topic for me, just the, the, the transformation of the belts and things like that. And the, I remember even with the WWF belts, um, seeing when one thing that I did when I worked at WWE was I got to go to Hulk Hogan's house in Tampa and I was in his, um, I guess, trophy room, you want to call it. And, you know, I didn't realize how many different versions even of the WWF belt that they used just for him, which was oh, wow. crazy to me. He was showing them all to me, even in the four years that he was champion there initially, they went through something like, and someone will correct me on this, but it was something like three or four different looking versions just in a four year span. Oh, wow. Uh, and again, I think it was because they were thinking of television at that time. Like we wanted right. to look good on TV and all that kind of thing. One of the great losses, uh, I feel is a great loss is the fact that nobody sat down with Reggie Parks and really mm. picked his brain. Reggie and I talked several times about doing a long interview uh, for my wrestling archive project, and I just never got around to it. But Reggie died, you know, last year or yes. recent, not too long ago. And Reggie actually is was the creator of many of the old old time famous belts. Uh, when I first got uh, started watching wrestling in 1968. The big team then was the Masked Medics, which was Jim Starr and Billy Garrett at the time. And they had an old, it was the Florida tag team belts. And you can, somebody still owns them. I've seen them on, somebody posted pictures about them. But I learned one day, even as a fan, and and that wasn't common knowledge, but somebody I talked to, uh, somebody closer to the business probably, told me that Reggie Parks created a lot of those old time belts. And I would have loved to have picked Reggie's brain about, the things, you know, the, who called him and how, you know, how he went about learning that trade. And I don't know, I guess Dave Milliken, you know, he's the big, he's the belt man now. He could probably tell right. us more about that. But somebody should have interviewed Reggie and just got, you know, talked to him more and learn more about the history of him and, and creating all those belts. And he did the ones, Reggie Parks, he actually did the the ones that are, I guess, most remembered even by the WWF fans of that era were his right those world tag team belts the the famous intercontinental belt design which they actually went back to using for a number of years i don't think they use it anymore but they were they they went back to it for many years um and of course even the the eagle the the famous wwf um eagle belt the original one the heavyweight all, yeah yeah those were all his the, Bruno, um, the one that was that, Bruno's belt and then there was um of course, Nikita Malkovich, right? He was another big belt maker in the 70s. I, I, I think the Sheik's belt was the Sheik's... The U.S. title? Yeah, because the Sheik had three different versions of the U.S. title. And there was one that was very different. It was a very flat plate kind of a belt. It looked a little like the AWA belt. But then you had the second version of it was the one that looked very much like a lot of title belts did in the 70s. It was the one that they used for Pedro Morales and Superstar Graham and, and that style. 
And then there was the one that looked like the 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 Mid Atlantic. Um, um, well, which belt did it? Uh, the Georgia National. Well, they use it now for the national title in in the new NWA. But it's the uh, one that has the medallion that's shaped like the United States. Yeah. You, ever, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? No, it's not. Yeah. The Sheik had one like that. That was the last version that he used uh, as the okay. U.S. title. Yeah. And speaking of which, actually, I want <laughs> if you don't mind and you already told me this, but could you tell the story again of the Sheik when when he when you were a, a, a mere photographer and how <laughs> how he treated you at ringside? Because I don't know if everybody knows that story. Yeah, well, I was blessed to work for Nick Goulas. Uh, I came started taking pictures there in Nashville in 1974 and. I wasn't, I didn't go often. I just went a few times, take a few pictures for some of the national magazines. And uh, then I'd go, and then I'd go back a few weeks later, take some more. Well, somewhere Nick found out and saw me or heard about me. And a couple of the uh, wrestlers that I knew talked to Nick and said they ought to bring me on board. And so Nick did. So I had opportunity that nobody had in those days. No, uh, no photographers. Anyways, you had uh, to, to actually have access to the dressing rooms. I mean, I just, I was one of the boys. But that didn't happen back then for, for anybody else. I mean, the, nobody was, you know, photographers were, they, they could hang around in the back, but not in the dressing room. So I was in the dressing room and I was talking with the sheik. Uh, the sheik was there. He came up and introduced himself. I took pictures in Memphis of him uh, for his, uh, what do you call it, his passport. Oh, no, it's for his Tennessee wrestling license. That's what it was. And so I had met him once in Memphis and then, of course, saw him there in Nashville. And I go out to the ring before his match because I wanted to get take some pictures uh, of his match for for the program that I published. And during the match, the sheik came out of the ring, and you know he used to get that wild look. His eyes would roll back in his head, and he'd start moving his head back and forth. Fans would scatter. I mean, he was scary, <laughs> scary, scary. I had just been in the back talking to him. Here I am at the ring, and he looks at me and starts walking towards me. Now, normally I would, yeah, I'd run anyways just to put it, put him over. I wouldn't just sit there and the fans say, well, the photographer's not scared. Would, but I tell you what, it made me think twice about it. It, it was scary. You know, I, I'd been talking to him, but there was just something about him, the way he acted right there, I thought. It just threw my head all of a sudden. I'm like, is this guy really gone off the deep end? You know, it just, it, I wasn't really thinking that, but you know, it sort of washed over me, you know, so. Right. But, it, but then I get to the back later and he's back to his normal self. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you weren't the only one with the photographers. I think I even told you at the time there were, I heard a different stories. So there was also Terry Dart's famous story. And, you know, he was shooting up in, I guess it would have been Toronto excuse me, and this, or maybe Windsor, and the same thing happened to him, only he said the Sheik actually destroyed his camera. Did you ever hear that story? No, uh, so, Terry has told me that, yes. Yeah, he, he would love telling that story, but the Sheik, I think he said he did it more than once. He he smashed the camera, you know, and wouldn't pay for it, and he, he seemed to really have some animosity towards him. I did one of the last interviews with him, and he did not have – any real nice things to say about about the sheik he told me some crazy stories i think he even told me that he um he kicked him out once of the building and he 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 followed him home in his car i mean crazy crazy Followed terry yes terry said that oh he claimed that he followed him 
home in his car. I, it, like he was trying to intimidate him or something. I, I, I never got to the bottom of why. <laughs> My favorite Terry Dart story told by De- Terry Dart. I, and I can't tell you who the guys were wrestling that night in the ring. But people used to throw things in the ring once in a while. And he said one night somebody threw an octopus in the ring. Oh and, I, and he's told me he told me that story several times. So I, I know he wasn't just making it up. But yeah, somebody threw an octopus in the ring. It wasn't a big thing, you know, it was just one of those little ones. But I thought, <laughs> I thought that that's, was hilarious. Wow, that's weird. Yeah, but but Sheik in in um, Tennessee, because that's where you encountered him, because that's where you were yes. involved a lot. Um, another what I noticed with the book too was that towards the later years of his career at least the more lucrative part of his career um that was Gulas's territory was one of the last ones that would keep bringing him in when a lot of promoters had stopped using him there were just a couple of places outside of his home turf where he would continue to go and Gulas was one of them I, i'm assuming they must have had some a very healthy relationship uh, with for that to continue yeah, at, at some point, I think it was 1977, somewhere around there, uh, Tom Ernesto had something to do help, to help. The, he was helping the Sheik with booking, I believe. Yes, he was. And he Tom took over. Course, yeah, Tom was on. booking for, for Nick at the same time. So that they had a connection. They even brought George Goulis, Nick's son, up there to, to uh, Detroit to wrestle. And they, they brought several of the guys from from here in Nashville up there. And then, of course, several of the guys came came down here as, uh, from Sheik's territory as well. That's right, because I and I contacted you about this. I just I, I threw this quick question at you. I don't know if you remember as I was writing the book, because I came across the fact that which is a visual I still can't get out of my head, that Sheik and Tom Renesto in in Tennessee had matches against the team that would become the fabulous Freebirds, Terry Gordy and Michael Hayes, when they were just kids. I mean, literally kids. And I had asked you and you told me at the time they weren't even known as the fabulous Freebirds. They haven't even been given the name yet. That's right. how early it was. Right. Uh, yeah. Terry and uh, Michael were here uh, as a team. And it was one of the they had been in Atlanta, I believe, before that, because uh, I was introduced to them their first night in by Vicki Goddard. Uh, Vicki Goddard was a friend of mine that went to college with me and she she was from Atlanta her brother used to have Danny used to have the Sputnik Monroe fan club back in the late 60s and but anyway uh I don't remember Renesto teaming up with the Sheik did I tell you they did no I actually found the the results of the matches I found those and also saw that he was working against Bobby Eaton which was another thing yeah. I was trying to wrap my head around when Bobby was still, you know, really wet behind the ears. I mean, it was when he was, I think it might've even been before he was teaming with George Goulas or maybe yeah. around the same time. Yeah. Um, and he was wrestling him in Huntsville in yeah. his hometown area, um, which I guess was promoted by Nick's brother. If I had that right. Yeah. the Yeah. He used to steal money from the box office. <laughs> <laughs> you could say it's long, it's long past now. Everybody's gone, you know, but that, yeah. and I wanted to ask you about that, not that specifically, but, um, cause you, you were closer to this than most people I would venture to say, you hear a lot of look wrestling promoters are wrestling promoters and many of them, there's always, you know, not so great stories about them or some people have, uh, negative memories about them, but 
but Nick Goulas is near the top of the list as far as people that very few people, and I hate to say even the Sheik as a promoter, that would come up a lot too, but people who didn't have a lot of nice things to say about him. It, would you, in your view, and what you experienced, was that warranted or was it unfair? I don't think, you know, I, more wrestlers, I've talked to hundreds of wrestlers, interviewed them, you know, and you wouldn't believe how many of them uh, have the same feelings towards other promoters. I Granted, I would say more people have uh, dislike for Nick Goulas than than any other promoter, probably. Uh, I can't think of any of that. Sheik, again, like you just said, the Sheik had a lot of guys didn't like him because he, yes. you know, he'd say, yeah, your check's going to be in the mail, and then they'd, they'd never get it, you know. And I heard that more and more towards the end of his career. And I think it was because he wasn't drawing like he used to and right. he couldn't afford to make as much. The problem with Nick is the guys used to get mad because of his payoffs, but half of Nick's problems was if he, uh, buddy Wayne uh, told this and told me this in an interview that I was just working on in that book. I just finished. He said, Nick would come in and he would say, man, we've got a $10,000 house tonight, man. They are packed to the rafters. Well, the house wasn't about $6,000, $7,000, but Nick just loved to brag about how much money he was drawing, how much money he was making. So he bragged about, it. well, then when the boys got their payoff the following week, it wasn't two, 3% or whatever the percentage was of the $10,000. It was of six or 7,000. So first thing they think is we got screwed on our payoff, but they weren't, they were, they were paid on the, on the percentage of the house they were supposed to get. But Nick, is, Nick caused himself problems by bragging about, uh, you know, inflating the amount of the house to the boys. So he, so he looked like this big shot, you know, so that was yeah. the main problem. And that's crazy, too, because usually you hear that the conventional wisdom is to do the opposite. You know what I mean? You don't right. want people to know how well you're doing because right. then they're going to expect a piece of it. So I've heard so many stories about promoters going, yeah, you know, it's really not good. Oh, yeah, we really didn't do well. Right. Because they people in the seats, right? <laughs> That's what they used to double, say. Double seats, right? It's full, but there's a lot of fat people in the seats. <laughs> but I guess with Goulas, he just couldn't uh, help from bragging, maybe or exaggerating. Yeah. What a what a strange thing to do, and then you get yourself in trouble doing that, I That's guess. Right. But yeah. uh, and with Sheik, you know, Les Thatcher told me a story about how, you know, he's from Cincinnati area, so he grew up in Sheik territory. But he didn't work a lot in that area all the time. And they at one point they persuaded him. He was home visiting his family, I guess, for the holidays. And Joyce and Sheik persuaded him to come do a couple of, of shots for them. And he said like a month or two later, he got a check in the mail. I may have the number a little off, but I think it was for like fifteen dollars. Oh, yeah, and that's... he just said, I'm never doing this again. I'm never. And he liked Sheik personally a lot. Right. And he still said, I just this is not worth my time, to, especially where he was at in his career. By that point, he wasn't just some rookie. And right. he just said, well, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to the trouble for fifteen dollars. I'm sorry. Or maybe it was 20. I don't know. Right. Yeah. A lot of guys, you know, there's a lot of guys you'll find, though, that speak highly of Nick. Uh, you know, that they, they, they made a good living with Nick. And the other thing about Nick Goulas was, it's like you said about the Sheik. If a guy couldn't find work in any territory, if nobody wanted him, especially if the guy was getting older and, you know, he couldn't take the bumps he used to take, couldn't get around the ring like he used to, he'd call Tennessee and Nick would say, yeah, come on in. Well, granted, Nick probably didn't pay him a whole lot, but at least the guy was working. 
A lot of those guys didn't have a, a career to fall back onto. They'd been, you know, in pro wrestling all their life. So they didn't have any skills. They didn't have any trade. They didn't, a lot of them didn't have any education. So the one thing I can say about Nick, other than the fact that he treated me like a prince, uh, is the fact that he gave guys an opportunity to work. And he also used a lot of guys that never would have made it in the big leagues. And I say this with all due respect. Bobby Eaton, if he, when he was young, if he had called Dallas, Texas and said, I want to come work for you, they would have never looked at him. You know, if he had called New York, they would have never even looked at him. He was this little country guy from right. Alabama. But because Nick gave him a start, man, Bobby became, Bobby was a star. But it took Nick Goulas, his territory, you know, working in the main events in Nick Goulas' territory to learn his trade. And Bobby turned out to be probably the best, one of the best workers ever, ever. Yeah, and, and that is so true because – you know, this is no one. We're not the first person to say this, but the the rap on him was always that he he just didn't look like a star. So if you were just going by looks, you would say, well, this is nothing special. It really doesn't. But then he gets in the ring, and you're watching somebody who absolutely. You know, it's like some people are just born to do stuff. Like I I may have even read you saying this. Somebody was saying how. He was discovered basically because he was a fan. He was a fan in that area and he would start helping to set the ring up. And sometimes they'd horse around when they had a little free time and he'd get in the ring. And just based on, you know, he had no training at the time, just based on what he saw people doing, like he was able to just absorb it, internalize it, and not only do it, but do it just as good, maybe better. Then some of them were doing it, and that's what got him noticed. With them going, oh my God, what is? Who is this kid? You know, he's just mm-hmm. he's just a fan. He's who who taught him? Nobody. Oh my God, you know, like yeah. that kind of thing. He was. Yeah, I hope to I hope to interview. Uh, plan to. I just got to get busy doing more interviews. But uh, Bobby Eaton's first tag team partner, Arvel Hutto. They Bobby and Arvel started out down in Alabama, and then uh, when I first met them, they were the Brown Bombers. They were a mask team. And, uh, of course, Arvel's still around. And so he's got, I'm sure, a lot of great stories about how Bobby Eaton got started. And they teamed, they were a tag team for a long, long time. So I'm anxious to do that, find out more about those early days that you were just talking about. The only time, you know, unfortunately, partly because of where I lived and grew up and the wrestling I was exposed to. And there's only one time that I ever got to see him live. And not only did I get to see him live, but I mean, I was right like a few feet away because I was working for WWE and they were doing the last uh, Brian Pillman Memorial Show in Cincinnati that Les was promoting. And I went down there to cover it and they had the Legends match on the card. Right. So WCW had just gone under. Bobby was I think they had let him go like a year before they went under. So he really had been kind of invisible because even Smoky Mountain was gone by that point because Jim Cornette was working for us. Mm-hmm. And Bobby was they had the Legends match, which was Bobby Eaton versus Terry Taylor with Ricky Steamboat as the ref. And I came out of the locker room and I just stood by the railing. And I don't know how to it's I don't even know how to describe it because I never saw anything like it in my life. I never saw anything like it before, after just it's impossible to describe. And almost watching it on TV doesn't even do it justice. Just how smooth and perfect and effortless he made everything look that couldn't possibly be effortless. But he made it look that way. Uh, Just once in a lifetime kind of a talent to me. anyway. yeah, 
Absolutely. And and would you'd never guess it, you know? You'd look at him and just right. go, oh, he's just some guy, you know? You would never Bobby, guess it. One of the other things about Bobby Eaton is he was one of the nicest guys you would ever meet, both in and out of the wrestling business. I don't care who you were, if you're a fan, a wrestler, or who. He always had time for you, and he he would just so for his his I guess his biggest downfall was he wasn't a good talker on in you know on the mic doing promos, but that's right. why they had Cornette. They didn't you know he didn't have to talk. Right. So, but I love Bobby. I and he died way way too soon. Yeah, and you know honestly I've seen some of his very early stuff, uh, even before the Midnight Express and when he was um, teaming with. Goulas, and then I guess when they turned him heel, and I, I, I'm blanking on, he was with a Japanese wrestler, right, for a while, where, where uh, he turned. Mr. Mr. Ito, was it? That was it. And he would, obviously, Mr. Ito couldn't do the promo, so he would do he would do promos for that team, and I don't think he was half bad. I mean, I was expecting from everything I heard that he was going to be absolutely terrible, and I don't think he was. I mean, uh-huh. ob- obviously, Jim Cornette is going to be an improvement over anybody in terms right, of promos, right. but I, I, I didn't think he was that bad. He did a gr- good interviews when he was here, you know, but it's for a regional territory. When you when you start working for WCW, you got to be a little bit, you know. Right up your game quite a bit, you know, and I, I don't know if he ever, I, I, I never watched WCW. I never paid any attention. So I don't know if he upped it or not, but I do know here he's, you know, he was good, good interview. He knew what to say and uh, he sold tickets. There's also a moment. And I, I know you, you mentioned the WCW thing and I want to get back to that in a second, but I wanted to point something out that I don't think enough people talk about, but and it has to do with Bobby Eaton. You know, the video, I mean, everybody saw this. It, it was a big thing even like 20 years ago on the internet about the, the fan at the wrestling convention, the guy who's, who says it's still real to me, damn it. You, yes. you know the video I'm talking about? Okay. Yeah. So that we all felt for that guy. We're a piece of that guy is in all of us, I think. But right. but in that moment, for people that haven't seen it, if you're living on another planet, you know, you have a fan at a wrestling Q&A at a convention and he breaks down crying because he's reminiscing about how wrestling used to feel so real to him and on the and thanking the wrestlers for their sacrifices. And on the panel, on the Q&A panel, I believe it's Terry Funk and one other guy and Bobby Eaton is there and and it's Terry Funk who's answering the question. So the guy starts to kind of cry and break down and you could hear Bobby behind Terry Funk. Bobby just goes, hey, take it easy, man. Take it easy. Like really, truly concerned about this right. guy, you know, and I think that brief little moment that people miss in that video says so much about him as a person. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Bobby was had had a good heart. He really did. In yeah. fact, that was his only downfall as a heel. He did a good job as a heel here, but he was, you know, he wasn't born to be a heel. He was born to be a babyface. Now I take that back. As, as Midnight Express, yeah, he was a heel, but he he didn't have to get up there and talk. You know, he didn't right. get up there and have to get himself. A lot of guys got himself across, not only in the ring, but. The, a lot of the place they got themselves across was on TV during their promos. You know, they talked like a heel and sounded like a heel. And Bobby was just, <laughs> just it was too something, nice. It was something likable about him. Like, especially, you know, I, yeah. I wouldn't say that about Dennis Condry. I wouldn't say that about Stan Lane. No offense to them. But they came across as dastardly, arrogant, no yeah. good guys that you wouldn't want to hang around. Whereas with 
I always felt with Bobby Eaton, uh, there was always this feeling of, oh, he seems like he's probably okay. If I got him away from the ring, he'd probably be a decent guy. He's just mixed yeah. up with the wrong crowd, you know, right. <laughs> that kind of right. thing. But yeah, I he, wanted, you know, he could yeah, stand cool. behind Jimmy and Stan or Jimmy and Dennis and, and frown. And he looked mean, you know, he looked like a heel, you know, with his frown on his face, you know, but, but what, you know, when he talks, it, it just, to me, it just never came across that way. So you said something that made me think of something I wanted to ask you about. You were saying how, you know, you never really followed WCW. So you didn't see the later part of his career there. Cause he did stick around long after the other guys left. I think, hmm. Uh, Jim Cornette has told the story about how they their contract came up. It was Stan Lane and Jim. Their contracts came up. They left and they were expecting Bobby to join them. And they were starting Smoky Mountain, I guess. And Bobby realized that he had like another year left on his contract. He didn't want to break it. You know, he had a family and everything. And, and um, he wound up staying there another 10 years. You know, yeah. he just stayed yeah. there right to the bitter end. But what I want to say is I remember you telling me the first time I talked to you that you pretty much stopped watching, really following wrestling in about 1986, if I have that year right. That's pretty close. Yeah. yeah. So, I, what? I, I mean, this is the most obvious re- question, but what what changed for you? Well, to be honest, from 1975 until 1980, when I was working for Nick, I seldom watched any of the shows because we were always on the road. Right. You know, Saturday after Saturday, we'd be going doing TV in uh, Birmingham or we'd be going to Chattanooga for television that after, late that afternoon. Then we'd be at the house show at the Memorial Auditorium in Chattanooga that night. So we didn't get to watch the TV programs. And that's another thing. People think the wrestlers used to watch it. They didn't have a chance to watch it. We were on the road every day, you know, driving to a different city. Uh, later years, once I got out of the business, yeah, from 1980 and late 1980 through 1986, I'd watch Memphis fairly regularly. Uh, I, I don't know if I watched much of anything else other than Memphis uh, at that point. I did watch some TBS stuff, uh, but I'd say even by 84, I was, you know, it, I, it wasn't a priority for me by that time. Right. And by 86, I just quit watching completely. It, it, it just it, nothing against it. God, you know, people love it because they love what it is. It isn't what I grew up on. It isn't what I fell in love with back in 1968. So it was just like, I don't even know if, why I want to watch it. it. It seemed too scripted, you know, but back then, it, yeah, it was It wasn't scripted, but, it, you know, they, they knew who was going to win. But they go into the ring and with no foreknowledge of what they planned to do, they just knew what was going to happen at the end during the finish. So that's sort of what turned me off from it, even caring about it. It was just too much like a so a stage play or a soap opera or anything. And again, I'm not knocking it. They sold a lot of tickets and a lot of people loved it. Yeah, I mean, that really was a changing of the guard time there where it was kind of the, I mean, the territories had been dying for a number of years, even by that point. Absolutely. But that really was the point where the business kind of contracted and it really became about two companies you know, instead of being about, you know, 20 or 30 companies, right, or, or, or even 10 really hot ones, let's say, it became the industry we know today. And and the funny thing about it now is you'll have people, myself included, who will look back even on the time that you're talking about and saying, boy, those were the good old days. Why couldn't it be like that anymore? You know, especially you're talking about overly scripted. I mean, now forget it i mean it's it's way it's gone way beyond that i remember yeah. one of the things i noticed when i worked 
for WWE. And I mean, I'm not giving away anything at this point, but you know, I would be at the shows and they'd be setting up the ring and doing things. And you would have the guys working through the entire match. And I'm sure that's the standard of how it's done now. And you, you even see it in, it's represented really well in, in the movie, the wrestler, the Mickey Rourke movie, they actually show them yeah. doing it where it's spot for spot. And I mean, they're in there literally rehearsing it like a performance, you know, and then I'll talk to other people. Like I remember talking to it's the, I talked to Ricky Steamboat and he's told it many times where they would say to him and flair, they would go, okay, you're going an hour. Uh, Rick, you get the first fall. Uh, Ricky, you get the second fall and the third fall is going to be time limit draw. And that's all they knew. That's and right. They would just do it. And uh, you know, it, it's, that's a lost art. That is a real lost art. Absolutely. They didn't have to sit down and say, okay, at this point, I'm going to give you a, a bill. At this point, I'm going to come off the ropes. They didn't do any of that. They just said, okay, we'll go in the ring. They knew it. Like I said, they knew what the finish was and, and that was it. And the thing that got me, I think more than anything was, and I can't tell you when exactly when or where it was, but during a house show and may even been a TV taping somewhere, they screwed something up big time. They, they, they had a certain finish they had to do and they didn't do it right. So they went, the wrestlers went to the back, they came out again and did it again in front of a live audience. And I'm like, how could they have done that? And these were old school guys. And I just, that just floored me. I just couldn't believe that they would actually do that before a a paying audience. You know, we're going to do it again. You know, I don't know. It's beyond me. Yeah, there was, uh, I don't know if this is the same story, but this, there was something that happened when I worked at WWE where, um, I think it was Rhino and Tajiri were the guys. And um, if I have them wrong, I apologize if it wasn't them. But I remember hearing, I wasn't there when it happened, but that Vince just hated what they were doing. Absolutely hated it. This wasn't a house show because he wouldn't have really been at a house show. It was, I think it was, and it wasn't live TV. It might've been SmackDown where they tape it in advance. Back then they would tape it in advance. And, And he just came out in the middle of the match and just said, this sucks. Get back to the locker room. You're done. And I don't even know if they had a chance to do it over, or maybe they did. But again, this all happened right in front of a live crowd. You know, it didn't make TV, obviously. And you, I've even heard stories at the at the TV tapings where they would do over parts of a match. Right. They would say, oh, well, you missed that. That spot didn't work. And they'd set up the entire thing again. And edit it back together. But now, you know, you've got 10,000 people watching you do that. Uh, you know, I don't know. It would have been unthinkable. It's a different business now. They look at it as a TV product. You know, people have told me that. And it's just right. not the same thing. But to an old school guy, it, it just, I don't care if it's if TV product or not. It just doesn't fly well. I mean, to have paying customers. I mean, to me, if a guy, if I was a a fan and I paid money to buy a ticket and get in there and I see two guys go in there and they then they come back out and do the same thing over again. I'm like, why am I going? Why do I want to holler for these guys when, you know, right. it's, it's, it, there's no believability there, you know, and I, I yeah, saw a guy, their situation was different with Tajiri and Rhino. I'm sure that that wasn't an expose. That was just Vince wasn't happy with what they did. You know, now right. whether they came out and did it again, I don't, like you said, I don't know either. But they, these guys absolutely did it again. That's crazy. I I, I once saw uh, this is a famous one. This this was on live TV on a on Monday Nitro, where Scott Steiner, whose finisher was 
basically the camel clutch. He called it the Steiner recliner, but where you've got the two arms, uh, you know, the other guy's arms are on your knees and you're crouching down and you got your hands behind his chin and you're pulling. So he had this enhancement guy in, in the Steiner recliner and his arms, this is a visual thing, but his arms are pinned way up high on the knees of Scott Steiner. So in order to submit, what this guy does is he takes his arm off the knee like nothing, takes his arm off Scott Steiner's knee, taps the mat, and then puts his arm back on top of Scott Steiner's <laughs> knee. And it was it's oh still goodness. talked about to this day. It was the most ridiculous thing that you ever saw. I, I can't remember the poor guy's name, but it oh, was just Lord. notorious. Yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> A little bit of an expose there. Yeah, really, truly. I don't know how that those guys would have would have gotten killed back in the day. Could you imagine coming back through the curtain and there's a right. Bill Watt standing there or Nick Goulas or Fritz von Erich or somebody? Oh, they would reach Yeah, they'd never. God, I mean, they'd be in some serious trouble. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, you know what? I also wanted to mention about the Goulas and and Tennessee stuff was. Um, you know, obviously, everybody talks about the split that happened and and Jerry Jarrett wound up, you know, starting his own promotion. And then Memphis became a totally different thing from that point on. And um, I don't know how close you were to it or if the timeline lines up at all. But do you remember how Nick took all of that? I mean, was that was there real bad blood there or was it more? Of an Nick, amicable Nick, kind of thing. Nick took a lot of things to heart. You know, when, when guys did something he didn't like, he he rant and rave, and he ranted and raved some. But for the most part, I don't remember much of anything really happening. You know, being really upset about it. I he seldom mentioned it in the dressing room. Of course, we went up to Louisville. We tried to run Louisville, and uh, you know, in opposition to them, and that that didn't go very well. They came to Chattanooga and didn't do very well for them. We, you know, we we outdrew them in Chattanooga. It was just a different audience, you know. They didn't they weren't keyed into the Memphis type style or Jerry style. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, I, I I don't really remember that much at all. I even I was best friends with Cowboy Frankie Lane at the time, and we hung out together all the time. And Frankie at the time was working for Jerry Jarrett. And Nick, he Nick knew that, and he never said anything about it, you know. So I, I don't think there's that much bad blood. And of course, later on, they had Jerry came in, and, you know, worked some for Nick, and sent some of the guys over to work for Nick. So no, I'm sure there was bad blood, but not, yeah, not a whole lot. Well, I don't, I don't think people realize too how, especially at its peak, how big of a territory it was, uh, especially when you had when it was you know, Goulas and Welch enterprises together. I mean, a giant chunk of the right. Southern United States, especially the su Southeastern United States belonged to that organization at one time. Oh yeah. Louisville all the way down to Birmingham and Chattanooga. And uh, then you've got Memphis and all the way over to Johnson city, you know, cause at one time that was Goulas Welch territory too, all the way over into Knoxville, Johnson city, Kingsport, uh, yeah, it was a big territory. It went down into Alabama, over into Arkansas. Far flung. And he also promoted a lot of other things besides wrestling, didn't he? I mean, he promoted Nick, music and concerts and things. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not familiar with any of that. I do know he brought some country music stars in in the early 70s. Like, I think uh, 
Hank Williams, not Hank Williams Jr.'s. He brought in a couple stars anyways, you know, that they'd have a concert after the matches. And uh, we did get involved with the Nashville Sounds minor league baseball team for a little while. We'd have matches after the baseball game. and uh, But no, I, I don't recall Nick promoting anything else. Back in the 40s and 50s, I think he did, but not when I was. Yeah, there. I think that's what I was thinking of, because when I was researching him, uh, I think that was the case, because I think even his his father might have been a promoter too before him it was it was was some kind of a family business as it usually is with with those guys i didn't Um, know anything about his father promoting i've never heard that yeah like his his his, you know gus and chris were involved and his brothers were involved and uh, that's if you want to hear that story i'll tell you about (laughs) gus gulas and huntsville please Please do. <laughs> they were, we were, they were drawing big houses back then. And I, I can't remember who was on top at the time. I think it was, well, I know it was when Renesta was there. So that would have been when Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy were wrestling and uh, the houses were big. Well, there was only a certain amount of money getting back to the office is, you know, a few thousand dollars. And everybody started talking, you know, there's more money in this house than what's going back to the office. What they're saying it is. So Tom Renesto, he was booking at the time. Of course, his job was on the line because he had to produce, you know, he had to bring that money in and sell those tickets. And he knew Huntsville was doing really well. So one day Tom rode up to Huntsville and I was with him. He says, he says he's going to stand out front the whole time and he's going to click the house. Every person that walked through that door, he clicked, clicked with that little clicker. And come find out that Nick's brother, Gus, was siphoning off money big time, probably 50% of the gate Holy and sending cow. back a lot less. And he was sending back what they used to draw is, what, in essence, what he was doing. If they, you know, at one point they weren't doing as well as they were then. Well, he just kept sending the same amount of money back. And Tom, sure enough, he says, yeah, he's siphoning off all kinds of money. So wow. I thought that was, that was pretty wow. amazing. Yeah, Gus wasn't around long after that. I was going to say he probably thought he could get away with it because he was family, I guess. And it would be, you know, easier to tolerate or or what have you. But, you know, that when it comes to money. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You can't be doing things like that. God. Right. But Renesto, he was an interesting guy, too, because he booked in a lot of different places. It seems like he, he got around everywhere and just. He had a boy. Did he have an interesting career? Because again, because of his involvement with Sheik, I researched him and I found out, you know, when he was a young man, he 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 did movies. You know, if they needed like a like a tough wrestler type, they would throw him in. You know, uh-huh. even back in the '40s, a, a couple of well-known movies. I can't remember off the top of my head, but then of course the Assassins and and then a whole career as a booker in all these different places. Um, yeah, what a career! What a, what a life! Yeah, Tom had that. Uh... I don't think who Clark Gable look, you know, that yes. mustache and, you know, he looked the, the movie actor type. And of course, that's when he was wrestling as Tony Martin uh, back in the 50s. And of course, later on, I, I don't know why he decided not to use Tony Martin anymore. He may have told me that at one time, but I don't remember. Well, there was a I wonder if it was like a Buddy Rogers situation because, you know, Buddy had to deal with the actor Buddy Rogers who who would who sued him. Uh, and he had to change his name in some states. He was called Nature Boy Rogers. But um, mm-hmm. there was a um, there was a singer named Tony Martin at that time. I wonder if there was a similar situation yeah. to that. Yeah, the Buddy Rogers you're talking about. He sued uh, the wrestler Buddy Rogers at one point. Yeah. 
for because Buddy was using the name. Absolutely. That's the hardest thing I found about researching Buddy. I was doing some work on uh, the Buddy Rogers book, uh, helping uh, just adding a few things to Tim Hornbaker's book that, that I published. Great book, by the way. Great book. I love it. And one of the things, the worst thing is every time I type in the search engine, Buddy Rogers, it'd bring all these references to Buddy Rogers, the singer, the actor. You yeah. know, so it, I had to go through twice as much stuff as I normally would to find the good stuff about Buddy Rogers, the wrestler. Right. Just like I discovered there was a baseball player named Dusty Rhodes, you know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> things like that will drive you nuts. Some territories, too, you can type in wrestling. Just type in wrestling. And you'll find all kinds of stuff. Well, I had a guy tell me one time, another historian, he says, I, I hate researching the South because when I type in wrestling, I get all these references to steer wrestling. <laughs> I don't know if you ever noticed that, but they have all these rodeos and they have steer wrestling and it's all over the place. So it, oh, that's great. it so takes a lot of extra time. Human wrestling, you have to specify. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, Professional wrestling or, or whatever. Oh, yeah. that's it. See, these are the struggles and the challenges of the wrestling writer and researcher, Scott. Absolutely. I feel your pain, Scott. That's right. <laughs> Although you've done about 20 times more books as I have. I have to catch up to you. Well, you're a lot younger. You got time. <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're all getting older, but I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Scott, this has been amazing. I can't even believe that an hour's gone by. I feel like we're just getting started, but... Um, uh, this just proves that we have to do another one, I think. Uh, anytime. You just let me know. I'm having I'm having a ball doing this. I love talking about the old days and the old you know times that I was in the business. And not a day goes by, I don't think about it, how much fun I had. I'm the same way. I, I really never get tired of talking about it. That's another problem with this show is I usually have to stop myself because I could just go forever and ever. And I'm one of those people you would think like people are, you don't want to get asked the same questions and people find out you write about wrestling or you worked in the wrestling business. And I never get tired of answering the questions. No. I, I really don't mind. I just think it's a lot of fun. I think it's great. And it's great to I talk agree. to people like you who've had such unique experiences. That's why I want to do this show again. It's, it's like what you do, you know, I'm just trying to preserve a lot of these memories and stories and things yes. that are so ephemeral. So thanks. Thanks, thanks Scott. for doing that. Thanks for what you did on the Sheik's book. I think that's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Scott Teal. And what a joy that was. Exactly in a nutshell, in one hour, the definition of, of the kind of conversations that I hoped this podcast would bring about. And so I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed talking to Scott. And we've got some great ones coming up, too. If you're waiting to hear who's going to be coming up in the weeks to come on Shut Up and Wrestle, I've been working hard to assemble a great future guest list. I want to announce that next week's episode, I will finally be uh, unveiling the conversation I did a while back with Greg Oliver, which I had been saving for a bit uh, because he, he had recently been a guest on the Arcadian Vanguard uh, podcast, The Mothership, of course. And so I wanted to kind of space it out a little bit, but he will be the guest next week. Also coming up in the weeks to come, 
We've got Tom Burke, the great wrestling memorabilia collector and fan. He's coming. Ross Hart of the world-famous Hart Wrestling family will be a guest on Shut Up and Wrestle. And I'm super excited now to say that I just recently had a nice conversation on the phone with the one and only Taskmaster, Prince of Darkness himself, Mr. Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan will be coming in the weeks to come to shut up and wrestle so keep listening and there's so many places that you can listen to shut up and wrestle of course our website is suawpod.com you can also go to spotify you can go to apple podcasts podcast addict google podcasts wherever you get your podcasts you will find shut up and wrestle and if you go to Facebook, you can join the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. Just look up Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. You'll find our group. You can join our conversation with all the cool kids talking about your favorite pro wrestling podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle. So I hope that you will join us. Uh, what else? If you're interested in picking up my book, uh, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, it is now available in print digital and audio formats on amazon.com so you can go ahead and order it there the magazines that i contribute to of course pro wrestling illustrated you can get at pwi-online.com and inside the ropes magazine you can get at inside the ropes magazine.com uh, if you happen to be looking for me on twitter i can be found at brian r solomon and you know i also have a little donation button there if you're interested in showing your support for the writings of brian r solomon or shut up and wrestle podcast whatever the case may be you can donate a few bucks right there on the twitter account i'm not uh too proud to say it and i'm also available and uh, i can be found on instagram at brian r solomon as well you can find my writer page on Facebook if you look up Brian Solomon Writer. And on any one of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my professional author web page. Uh, Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you enjoy yourself it's later than you think so long wrestling fans 